Hello and welcome to The Download. I'm your host, Dave Richardson, and it is time to catch up with Canada's hardest working economist. We haven't had him on for a few weeks, and the way things are going these days, Eric, it, we, we can't really, we should have you almost on every day because there's something happening uh, around the global economy that is significant because it's just a, it's a very strange time. It, it is awfully hard to keep up, Dave. I'm not sure if I could handle a podcast every day. I can barely handle the run of data as it stands right now. But let, let's pretend I have all that in my head. And as you say, there, there's an awful lot going on. Well, I, I, I was out on I was out with Eric on the road uh, a couple of times over the over the last month. And uh, if I ever doubted the label I've given him as Canada's hardest working economist, it was put aside after this. I've never seen anybody work harder than the, and and I know you've got this flow of data. And you've got uh, uh, and and you know everything that's happening. Plus, you're out speaking and and doing all the stuff you do. It's just uh, just incredible. Well, thank you very much, Dave. I think you greatly exaggerate and let the record show. When we were in Vancouver, I snuck off one night and caught a minor league baseball game. So it wasn't all work on my part. But uh, nevertheless, uh, in fact, I, I'm presenting uh, twice today. In, in a castle both times, Dave. Now, it is only the Weston oh, really? Harbour Castle in Toronto. It's not quite as exciting <laughs> as it sounds like. But uh, nevertheless, anytime I'm in a castle, I'll brag about that. Well, I, I'm, I'm in a castle in Sardinia. So look at that. We're, uh, it's, the, uh, it's, it's the castle. Maybe the economy's not that bad if we're doing okay. Uh, but but uh, let, let's, get to, let's get to the economy. We, we, I guess what, maybe we'll start with the jobs report from Friday. We had Canada-US jobs. Mm-hmm. What, what, are your, what are your thoughts on, on those reports? Yeah, I mean, I, I think as with the the prior five or six, you could you could kind of take it a couple of ways, and you could start by saying these are good numbers. Uh, there is more, there is still hiring happening in the U.S. and by the way in Canada as well. We saw 253,000 new jobs. That's a good number. That's you know, faster than you'd normally need just to keep pace with the population, and so that that's all a very positive story. Um, it is fair to say that if you look at it on a chart, you will still note that the rate of hiring has slowed materially over the last year, and so I would say half of that is because it was incredibly fast a year ago and six months ago, and, and half is because it is it is starting to settle down uh, g- genuinely. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say, and this is something that we've, we've spent some time studying over the last month, but it's fair to say that uh, with all this hiring, you'd think the labor market would just be screaming tight and, and overheated and all those sorts of things. And um, it certainly is is a, a strong labor market and the unemployment rate uh, is is now uh, you know, even lower. It's 3.4%. It's it's you know, tied now with the, the cycle low that we saw a few months ago. Um, but the, the supply of labor has broadly kept pace. Now, it wasn't anything special this month, but if you look over the last year, the last year and a half, a lot of the people who dropped out of the labor market actually have come back. It's it's not quite all, and there were certainly people who went off into retirement and so on. But nevertheless, uh, basically, we saw a lot of hiring in the last year, and we saw a lot of people you know, start looking for jobs in the last year. And they actually balanced each other out in a way that that argues that the labor market is, is still tight, but it's, it's actually not any tighter than a year ago and not as much as you would have thought based on all the hiring that's happened. So they, they've been able to absorb these extra people. Uh, the, the final perspective you could maybe give on the labor market, so perspective uh, one being that it's it's still strong hiring, two being that it's decelerating, three would be, and we've said this before, but when you dig into the details, you do find still, I think, a pretty long list of evidence that the labor market's probably going to cool significantly from here. So uh, I, I'm a broken record, as you know, Dave, on that, and so I'm yeah, not sure yeah, quite how much yeah. credibility I possess 
success. And I, I, I rue the day that I agreed to do these on, on employment days since employment numbers are kind of the one thing that refused to cooperate with the, the economic slowdown story. But I will say, you know, jobless claims are now rising. They're, they're, they're still low enough, but they are definitely rising. We were all a bit fooled by that because they weren't rising. And then suddenly the statistical agency said, oh, what do you know? We've revised them. And they were revising. They were rising for the last six months. We just didn't know. So they've actually been rising for longer than people had thought. And jobless claims are about a quarter higher than they were at the start of the year. So there is a real increase there. So there's a bit of a turn. Uh, as we've said many times before, temporary employment is falling. And so that tends to be correlated with some softness in the broader labor market several months later. So that's still happening. Uh, mass layoffs are still up. They're not you know, pandemic level up, but they are significantly up. And we think that continues. Uh, and hiring plans are, are definitely softening. They're not atrocious, but they are softening. So uh, I still think we're going to see labor market weakness. I wouldn't say the April data was, was quite that. I guess that's where we're left. And you know what, just let, let's save you the trouble. You can just repeat this next month, I guess, since it's been sort of a similar story for quite a while, Dave. Well, let, 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 let me support you a little bit more. That's I, I should do this uh, pro- probably more than I do on this podcast. Uh, but as well, the, 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 the two previous months in the U.S. were revised downward mm-hmm. for jobs and job openings have been declining quite rapidly. So, yes, y- you, you don't, yeah, don't, yeah, that's don't claim defeat on your forecast <laughs> just, just, just yet. And, and then even then, you, you might be a couple of months off, which in economics terms is pretty much spot on, right? Yeah, and, and maybe the key, the other key point, lots of key points here. The other key point is just that the labor market is not the leading indicator. Don't don't look to it to, to gauge recessions and things. We have business cycle tools that we recently revisited. They still say it's end of cycle. We have other metrics of economic momentum, and they're they're okay. But there's a bit of sputtering happening, and I'm hoping we actually get a chance to talk a little bit about loan officer survey and, and some lending conditions because that's actually saying something we think quite quite powerful as well. But uh, but the labor market is is still sending that very mixed reading uh not capitulating fully yet well if you're if you're tipping questions for me on the podcast now <laughs> i am <laughs> let me ask you about lending conditions in the united states and medium and question. small banks <laughs> really <laughs> great go. question dave uh, i'm glad you asked that uh, we really should plan a little more in advance but nevertheless good, good. i, I want to go here um j- just because uh, i mean i would never want to hang my hat on one indicator and w- whether it be sure. the number of jobs created or something else and of course there's a huge danger in uh in anchoring to a certain view and, and cherry picking numbers that support you i don't like to do any of those things we like to take a broader picture um but i will say that when we go through our list of you know things that you usually happen before recessions and things that when they happen almost inevitably mean a recession, um, lending conditions are, are in that list. Uh, and so, you know, here we are in a world in which interest rates have risen quite a bit over the last year and a, and a half. And so that's been on the back of central banks and a few other things. And so that that does some damage to the economy and with a lag and we're sort of starting to, to see a bit of that damage manifest. Uh, and of course, you know, b- banks are struggling. There's this other bank stress channel and that's starting to do some damage to lending as well. Uh, but in the middle, you have have you know, lending conditions, and so not so much the cost of lending, which is what interest rates largely convey, uh, but the availability of loans at, at, at any price. Uh, and uh, loan officer surveys, particularly for the U.S., but not uniquely, we see this in Europe as well, and a little bit in Canada. Uh, but the U.S. Senior Loan Officer Survey came out; it's a quarterly survey. Uh, we'd already seen a fair amount of tightening. So just just so you know, even before the latest quarter, we were seeing.
seeing, particularly for, for willingness to lend to, uh, to businesses, uh, that had already tightened a lot and was frankly consistent with a recession happening in, in future quarters. Uh, we continue to see more of that. So it wasn't a huge leap, but nevertheless, as regional banks have struggled, we saw those lending standards tighten further. So the willingness to lend to businesses has further tightened. Uh, the willingness to lend for commercial real estate, to no one's surprise, has tightened quite a bit. That's a source of concern uh, right now in the U.S. Uh, the willingness to lend for mortgages uh, and to consumers in general has also tightened quite a bit. And so we are continuing to see lending standards tighten. Uh, maybe the most interesting, some people will say uh, it tightened, but not as much as they thought it might, given bank stress. And I would say it tightened a lot in the prior few quarters. So I don't know how much more tightening you could get, to be honest. And so that doesn't that doesn't disturb me too much. I still think it's, it, it's evidence of weakness. Um, but on the demand for loan side, this latest quarterly data showed that the demand for a lot of types of credit has really come off too. And so businesses don't even want to take, you know, they don't have grand plans at this point. Uh, and, and same on, on a number of other fronts. The one exception was uh, was commercial borrowing, or pardon me, consumer borrowing. Uh, and so that's that's still quite weak. It was just one of these slight tilt the other way. Uh, and so the, the debate there, and I don't have a perfect answer, but the debate there is, is the demand for, say, mortgages rising because the housing market seems to be stabilizing this spring and maybe even having a bit of a, a bounce to its step? And so that would be the optimistic take. The pessimistic take would be consumers have been spending beyond their means for a while now, and maybe they're they're having to tap credit to to, to not run into trouble. And so I, I'm not quite sure how to take that. But I would say, uh, on the whole, these, these lending standards are tightening a lot and in a way that would normally take you to recession, just like an inverted yield curve would and a number of other signals. Yeah. Yeah, like uh, it costs more to borrow, harder to get the loan. So mm -hmm. that just kind of grind and 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 lending and borrowing is that that's sort of the oil that keeps the uh, the wheels turning, the gears moving in the uh, in in the global economy. So that uh, that that would certainly be pointing to at least slowing down. And as you've been saying for some time, much more likely that we we do have a recession. Um, still still thinking that it's Eric. You're still thinking that it's 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 likely more of a a shorter and shallower recession uh, than, yeah. than the average recession. Yeah, at a minimum than the last two. So versus 2020 versus 2008-09, there's no reason it needs to look like that in our opinion. Mild to middling by a longer term historical standard, but but nevertheless, more of a classic business cycle recession or, or monetary policy induced recession as opposed to the, the crisis kind of recessions that we've, we've had more recently. And and so then that that kind of resets things, which is which a recession does. It sort of takes that that you know that that pressure, that that heat overheatedness out of the economy, and then you're left with probably pretty decent conditions for growth from that point on. You likely have slightly lower interest rates, and you've got got lots of things that are uh, that are working uh, uh, that are working in favor of some growth down the road, right? Uh, precisely, that's right. I mean, not that recessions are to be celebrated, but if, if you're a, a savvy, nimble investor, they can represent an opportunity, and uh, they are an opportunity for economies then to grow more quickly thereafter. They, they've right-sized, they can then uh, move more quickly, and so we are forecasting pretty good growth in 2024 and 2025. And uh, I should say, not that anyone cares about this but me, but don't get too hung up on the annual GDP numbers. If you look at an annual GDP forecast for 2024 right now, you'll see some pretty grim-looking numbers. Our own forecasts are actually a weaker number than 2023, but it, it's totally because of handoffs and base effects, sort of confusing things that probably don't merit detailed discussion here. I would just say, if you look at it on a quarter to quarter basis, that's what matters. And on a quarter to quarter basis, we've already seen just modest growth in the first half of this year. We are forecasting 
decline in the second half of this year. So that's not a great 2023. For 2024, we're pretty consistent in looking for, in the likes of the U.S. and Canada, like 3% annualized growth per quarter. Like that's, you know, this is a this is a 2% growth world under normal circumstances. That's good. Like that's a real recovery. And so don't, don't be put off by the idea that people are forecasting a number that's lower for 2024. It's really just because of the, the bad ending to the prior year and things like that. There should genuinely be a recovery and it could be a fairly a fairly brisk one. So, so Eric, you, you've uh, you've you've done some work on on the banking. Um, I, I again, I call it more of a hiccup than a crisis uh, because of of how aggressively regulators and the and central banks have 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 attacked this uh, to make sure that it it doesn't become structural, it doesn't spread out across the the banking system, as as we almost got as well as we did and in in the global mm-hmm. financial crisis. But, but but what when when you when you did some digging, what what did you find about small and medium sized banks in the U.S.? Right. Okay. Yeah. Sure. And so yeah, I, I've been using the word stress, which I guess is probably a little more intense than hiccup, but certainly not crisis. And so I, anyways, <laughs> sure. we we could debate semantics. But um, yeah, we we've had mid sized U.S. banks, the regional banks as they're called, have have struggled, and several have have failed, and there are others that are are still struggling for the moment. So let's not let's not downplay that. That is of some significance. And you know, generally when interest rates go up by a lot, uh, the, some things break, and this is one of the things that has broken and uh, it, it is part of the story of diminished availability of credit and it's it, it, it will you know, limit the economy. So I, I don't want to downplay that nor to suggest that we've seen all the banks that are going to have trouble have trouble because there do seem to be a few that are still wobbling, though I think at this point there's a pretty clear playbook in terms of in terms of what the government and what larger private banks will do in terms of seemingly stepping in as per JP Morgan and First Republic recently. Um, but so I guess to answer your question, um, Instinctively, I was nervous about small banks. We were seeing a lot of headlines about mid-sized banks. Seems like the big banks are okay. They're well capitalized, not as exposed. They were already marking to market their bond portfolios and things like that. But it felt to me like, gee, if their mid-sized banks are having trouble, can you imagine the small banks which have... In, in general, even more specific geographic exposure, or even even you know less liquidity or less capital, uh, and of course they're smaller, and and generally they're not going to be in investors' investment portfolios because most of them aren't publicly traded. But nevertheless, you know small banks are an important part of the U.S. economy, and that 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 would be an issue if they ran into trouble. Um, to my surprise, and I, I'm not an expert on this, I can't cite thousands of names because there are thousands of small banks. But uh, to our surprise, when we looked in, actually you look at the liquidity of different size banks. And it was the smallest banks that were the most the most liquid in terms of the, the average bank portfolio. When we looked at, at which size of bank had the most capital, it was actually the smallest banks that were looking quite good. Really? They, they, they were holding wow. more. The midsize were lagging, but it was the smallest that had more. Um, when we looked at uh, you know the fraction of deposits that were insured, it was a sm- maybe not surprisingly smallest banks have smaller customers, but ultimately you know they had larger fractions of their deposit base insured and therefore in theory immune to to worry about problems. And when we looked at exposure to commercial real estate, because you sort of here and it's quite true that you know the commercial real estate sector is funded disproportionately out of the you know the the, the mid-sized banks and I was sort of assuming maybe small as well but no they have less exposure to commercial real estate too and so again I, I don't doubt there are mismanaged small banks and so on but it didn't seem like it was obviously the next shoe to drop or a systemic issue there I think the focus is rightly on the mid-sized banks um, it, it is a tricky thing we've I think we've talked before and I'm sure you have Stu Kedwell on regularly to talk through yes. these things at a more sophisticated level but you know when the Fed put in that liquidity 
liquidity program. It was a generous program and it provided in theory enough liquidity and it, it even kind of papered over some temporary insolvency because it was lending money out at the par value of the, the bank's bond holdings, not at its, its diminished face value. And so all that is quite nice. Um, I will say one thing that struck me recently is that this is one of these, these multiple equilibrium situations. And so one in which if the depositors say, oh, good, you know, this is a credible solution, it's done, uh, then it is done. Um, however, if depositors, you could say, irrationally continue to pull their money out despite the availability of the liquidity and despite the availability of, of, of you know, filling in the any kind of capital deficit that temporarily exists as, as bonds work their way back to par, um, unfortunately, like there is a second equilibrium, which is it also makes sense to pull your money out if everyone else is pulling your money out because these liquidity programs, they're, they're quite good, but, you know, they cost 5% a year to finance. And so that's a lot more expensive for a bank than these 0% they were paying on the checking account yeah, yeah, that was yeah. previously there. And so yes. that's, you know, that begins to challenge things by itself. Uh, and then simultaneously, you know, this program is good for a year and they could extend it, I guess, but nevertheless, it's good for a year at this point in time. And realistically, if you're a bank that's lost half your deposits, that's an extreme case, but if you lost, you know, you're not getting you're not doubling your deposits over the subsequent year, particularly if you're a bank that's been kind of marked as having trouble. And so I, I guess the takeaway is, in theory, the liquidity program was enough to stop bank runs. In practice, it hasn't always been. And so it is still possible for banks to run into trouble. And we've seen you know, one more, I suppose, do that since that program was put in place. And again, I'm not an expert on names, but it seems like there are a handful of others that, that could have a similar fate. But as, as I briefly mentioned earlier, uh, it seems like there's a bit of a playbook here. And so we've got the FDIC swooping in and depositors are mostly being made whole and other banks are finding the terms that are available fairly attractive to absorb these entities. So I, th I think it's okay, but I, I think maybe the useful way to think about it is just that it's another thing, tightening lending standards. And uh, you know, th this is a story that may have a you know, multi-year trajectory to it. I don't know if it's quite a savings and loan kind of situation that spanned a decade, probably not. Um, but, you know, mid-sized banks are not going to be in a position to lend as freely for you know, probably a number of years as they rebuild their deposit base. It's not just a story of let's wait till June 1st and then everything is perfect. So uh, it, it, it is very much a lingering issue from an economic standpoint. Yeah, and and I think really important in in what you you just said there and and what you've mentioned in on previous uh, podcasts is is the, the the idea that there's a playbook in in, in place here they, they 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 know they have a very clear idea of how you backstop the financial system coming from the experience we had in the global financial crisis and then i think most importantly is it it's not only do they know what to do they're doing it and they're doing it fast and and that just brings a different level of confidence versus dithering around and trying to just you know should we should we not is what's the moral what's the moral hazard of doing this it's like look let's just let's ensure that let's make sure the deposits are covered make sure the system's good we'll worry about the the, the after effects later and 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 that's not to dismiss those but but that's really really keeping keeping the system whole is is the most important piece I, I think that's right. And again, the magnitude of the problem is significantly less. And you can say that just objectively in terms of it's, it's mid-sized banks, not giant banks running into trouble. And there isn't the opacity of who owns what and what's it really worth and all these different uh, you know, mezzanine levels. and things. It, it was sufficiently complicated in 0809. It was just hard to get a good read on things. And that spelled additional fear. And it's pretty straightforward, right? Banks have bond market losses and some of their customers are nervous. And it's it's not an easy or perfect situation, but it's, it's a whole lot clearer. And the, some 
sums involved are quite a bit less and regulators have learned some things, clearly not quite enough in the sense of maybe a bit of that deregulation in the late 2010s may have been ill-advised in retrospect in terms <laughs> yes, of yes. the little less oversight that maybe was warranted. Uh, but but nevertheless, uh, it, it does feel like a different situation. And you, you can establish that empirically too. You just look at you know, bank credit spreads and okay, they're wider than they were as of late February to be sure, um, but they look absolutely nothing like what, what they looked like in 2008, 2009. Yeah. So when when you say just just for just for the audience, because we've got a lot of a lot of very sophisticated people, uh, investors who who listen to this, but other people who are kind of just starting out in in economics. What, what's a bank credit spread? What? How? Sure. Well, I mean, gee, it could be any number of things. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I mean, it could, I mean, there are a number of ways of doing this. It could just be like, what's what's the credit spread on a bank when it borrows money in the bond market, right? Because you know, yeah. bank fails and you don't get your your money back, and so the credit spread needs to compensate for that. And so that's that's a simple way. There are also credit default swaps. Which which, uh, which you know, literally a bet on will this entity fail or not? And of course, you know, the bet is 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 higher than it was three months ago. But it again looks nothing like uh, what it looked like during the global financial crisis. In fact, it looks kind of like when people get nervous about banks about every two years or so. That's kind of the magnitude of the problem, not a not a once in a in a 50 year kind of event, which you could argue the the global financial crisis perhaps was. Uh, and so, and there are a few others as well. Basically, anything that is indirectly or directly gauging the creditworthiness. Of the banking sector is saying yes, there's been some stress recently, uh, but on the aggregate, at the industry-wide level, it, it's still still pretty straightforward going. Excellent. Well, uh, I, maybe we'll stop there, Eric. Uh, we've got a couple of more things coming out later this week in terms of uh, of numbers. We'll want to check back in with you, so we'll likely have you on pretty quickly. But that's a great synopsis of uh, of again just an enormous number of things that are going on. Uh, did uh, did the Vancouver uh, baseball team win? When you went? No, they were utterly destroyed with a grand slam in the mix. But I had a ball, though. I, 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 I the tickets were cheap. That's maybe the most yeah, important yeah. thing for an economist. Um, I thought I'd bought tickets in the back row, but it turned out they flipped the map. I had tickets in the front row, <laughs> so I was oh. like pressed against the screen. It was pretty fabulous. There were there were people preparing to bat who were making asides to us in the audience and things. It was a great time. I had that's fun. Uh, that that's karma for all the hard work you're doing. And I, I've heard that that Vancouver baseball uh, experience is fantastic. So uh, it, it was. I'm really gonna check that out when I get out there the next time myself. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me, Dave. All right, Eric, take care. Enjoy your, uh, enjoy your trip to the castle and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you next week. Okay. Thanks. Bye. This recording has been provided by RBC Global Asset Management, Inc. for informational purposes only and is not intended to be investment or financial advice. You should consult your own legal, accounting, tax, investment, or financial planning advisors before engaging in any transactions.